0: Unraveling a disinformation campaign is no easy task. It means entering a kingdom of shadows peopled by would-be Machiavellis who are practiced in the art of deception. <laughs>
1: You are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. Back with us again this week, we have Laura Nadyachik, and we're going to be discussing counterintelligence and 9 11. I'm mm-hmm. Joe. I'm Henry.
0: I'm Scott. And I'm glad to be here tonight. We are too. Welcome.
1: Glad to be here tonight.
0: That joke never gets old.
1: (laughs) Speaking of disinformation and counterintelligence, we can start with today's news, perhaps, because there's uh, a lot of uh, counterintelligence unfolding uh, before our eyes on today's news on uh, Thursday, the 8th of June. Startling news. Shocking news. Uh, The mainstream media... uh, uh, First and foremost, the U.S. government tells us that they have successfully, again, killed, <laughs> successfully killed al Zakari. Oh, and he got a successful strategy. Use it time and time again. Kill him yes. once. Kill him twice. Well, the thing is, I was startled, uh, shocked, not by his death, but by the fact that the Pentagon decided to sacrifice one of their greatest and most valuable assets that they have used and abused over the past few years. This guy who uh, U.S. military intelligence agents in Iraq uh, a couple of years ago specifically said that he was more myth than man and that the the Pentagon, the U.S. government, had uh, kind of played him up and turned him into this arch-terrorist in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They even came up with this name, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. that they they used him to basically um, used this figure whether he exists or not or whether he ever was alive or not he probably was at some stage but um, that they used him to um, because they needed someone to blame all of the the mayhem and murder and chaos in Iraq, Uh, they needed a scapegoat so they they, they used him and he's been very valuable from that point of view Um, and today he's, he's no more, he's gone, which is kind of ominous in a way because it suggests that they're moving to
0: they're going to drag somebody else out from under the bed.
1: Yeah, well, they're moving to a new stage, a new uh, <clears throat> the next level, in the war on terror. Yeah. yeah,
0: well, they had to invent him because everybody was laughing every time they talked about Osama bin Laden because so many authoritative sources had, you know, were coming out and saying that he was already dead. So, you know, they they tried to produce some videos and some letters and some tapes and so on and so forth and and keep Osama under the bed, but. It just wasn't flying, so they had to invent this guy to, you know, to get out there and do stuff because obviously uh, Osama, even if he were still living, couldn't go out and do all of the feats of daring do and and car bombing and assassinating of his own people that Zakawi was doing because, you know, I mean, how can you do that when you're hooked up to a kidney dialysis machine? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Dragging along behind you, you know, you'd be caught in.
0: It would be a good and place to
1: hide explosives. Yeah, yeah. You
0: get, yeah, You got your you got your IV bottle, on, you know, on the rolling stand in one hand, and your AK forty seven in the other, <laughs> charging <laughs> out to do battle. <laughs> That's rather funny. So that was why Al zakari was invented, and uh, you know, perhaps uh, the, the invention was uh, wrapped around a real individual. Um, we don't know if he continued to exist for any great length of time, or if he was just a patsy who was created and and used from the very beginning. I mean, you know, look at uh, Lee Harvey Oswald; uh, he was, you know, very good patsy, and then they, you know, shot him when it suited them. And Al zakari may have been exactly the same thing, just a patsy. Well, assuming as, he was real.
1: Yeah, as are as are most of these high profile Al Qaeda figures. You know, I mean. Um, it's interesting. There's a, there's a we have a report on the Science Page today about how uh, the, the FBI um, on their most wanted terrorist uh, page for Osama bin Laden they have him down for um, listed as having um, being responsible for several attacks, uh, but not the 9/11 attacks. And the, the the author of this article that's on the page today called up the FBI and asked them why. Uh, he was not listed as being responsible for the 9-11 attacks and he was told that 9-11 wasn't on Osama's profile because uh, they had no hard evidence connecting him to 9-11, which is kind of strange given that uh, within a few hours of 9-11 the U.S. government claimed that this was the man who had carried it out and that's why they uh, invaded Afghanistan. And they said they had the proof and that they'd show us the proof and of course now five years later, almost five years later, they have never... Produced
0: any proof. proof. Yeah. So, I mean, not only was Osama not connected to 9-11 by any hard evidence, but uh, Saddam Hussein was not connected to al-Qaeda and, or 9-11. So then this all comes back to uh, another interesting article that was, we published today, which was Craig Under's piece that was published in Vanity Fair, entitled, The War They Wanted, The Lies They Needed. And the synopsis of the article is that the Bush administration had invaded Iraq, claiming Saddam Hussein had tried to buy yellowcake uranium in Niger. As much of Washington knew, and the world soon learned, the charge was false. Worse, it appears to have been the cornerstone of a highly successful black propaganda campaign with links to the White House. Now, this is really a must-read. It's a, it's a long article, but if you really want to understand... How these things work, you need to read this, and, and this is important because, particularly for the 9-11 movement and all you 9-11 investigators and so forth out there, uh, Unger says that this was a classic PSYOPs campaign.
1: And a successful PSYOPs Oh, campaign. it was
0: completely successful. He says, for more than two years, it has been widely reported that the U.S. invaded Iraq because of intelligence failures. But in fact, it is far more likely that the Iraq war started because of an extraordinary intelligence success, specifically an astoundingly effective campaign of disinformation or black propaganda, which led the White House, the Pentagon, Britain's MI6 intelligence service, and thousands of outlets in the American media to promote the falsehood that Saddam Hussein's nuclear weapons program posed a grave risk to the United States. Now, How does that apply to the 9-11 Truth Movement? It applies 100% across the board because it seems that the 9-11 Truth Movement, so-called, is another extraordinary intelligent success. It is an astoundingly effective campaign of disinformation, black propaganda. And it all results in covering up the crime of the century. So, going on with Unger's article, he says, To trace the path of the documents from their fabrication to their inclusion in Bush's infamous speech, Vanity Fair has interviewed a number of former intelligence and military analysts who have served in the CIA, the State Department, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the Pentagon. Some of them refer to the Niger documents as, quote, a disinformation operation. Others as, quote, black propaganda, unquote, black ops, or classic psyops, psychological operations campaign. But whatever term they use, at least nine of these officials believe that the Niger documents were part of a covert operation to deliberately mislead the American public. Again, this applies to the 9-11 truth movement. And one thing that he points out about this is no matter how many times any of these people who knew that these Niger documents were fraudulent brought this up or tried to point it out or tried to bring the attention of other officials or the public to that fact, it kept coming back again because, as they say... They were just relentless, says Wilkerson, who later prepared Colin Powell's presentation before the United Nations General Assembly. You would take it out and they would stick it back in. That was their favorite bureaucratic technique, ruthless relentlessness. And we have seen this in the 9-11 truth movement, ruthless relentlessness of disinformation, misinformation, and outright lies. Now, what he also says, and listen up here, unraveling a disinformation campaign is no easy task. It means entering a kingdom of shadows peopled by would-be Machiavellis who are practiced in the art of deception. In the world of fabrication, you don't just drop something and let someone pick it up, says Bearden. Your first goal is to make sure it doesn't find its way back to you. So you do several things. You may start out with a document that is a forgery, that is, a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, which makes it hard to track down. You go through cutouts so that the person who puts it out doesn't know where it came from, and you build in subtle, nuanced errors. So you can say, in the end, we would never misspell that. If it's very cleverly done, it's a chess game, not checkers. Reporters who have entered this labyrinth often emerge so perplexed that they choose not to write about it. The chances of being manipulated are very high, says Claudio Gatti, a New York-based investigative reporter at Il Sole, the Italian business daily. That's why I decided to stay out of it. And so it is in the 9-11 truth movement. It is a world of shadows. It is a world of cutouts. It is a world of plausible deniability. And it is well orchestrated. You don't just drop something and expect somebody to pick it up. And later on in the article, he points out that somebody who is running a disinformation campaign is like a conductor, that they you know, will point their finger at one person who is set up to do one thing, to leak one piece of information, and then... They bring in the mass media, then they bring in the television, then they bring in, you know, another person who supports it. And this, this article describes the entire operation of the Niger Yellow Cake documents in exactly that way, that it was an orchestrated campaign, and that means orchestrated in the sense of an orchestra. Now, you can see this happening in the 9-11 truth movement. And who are the lead players? Well, obviously the lead players are the ones who have been placed in positions of high visibility. And you don't think that just because they are alternative news sources that they are not part of this campaign because certainly, as this article points out, the alternative sources, the leakers, the the persons who are supposed to be uh, say, not part of the official sourcing are created and set up to look exactly that way. I mean, nobody is going to let it get traced back to them. So so they set up uh, alternative sources. They set up high-profile alternative sources. They back them, they fund them, and they let them run. And then when they're supposed to come in and play their part in the orchestrated uh, song of, of disinformation, then they, they step up to the plate and they play. So... What we're going to talk about here in particular is our own experiences with that. And all of us here have had personal experiences. My own experiences began a little bit earlier in a slightly different context. And what context are you talking about? Well, actually, I first began to learn about disinformation and counterintelligence in the context of UFO investigation and the so-called New Age Human Potential Movement. And I have to say that I started out in that particular field as a flaming skeptic. I tell people rather frequently that when anyone would ask me, you know, what do you think about UFOs, I would snort in disgust and, and refer to people who believed that there were UFOs or that there were aliens or or that there was any any, any such thing Manifesting on this planet, that they were either out to get attention, they were psychologically damaged, they'd been sexually abused, and they were covering it up by saying they'd been abducted by aliens, they had a millennial disease that, since you know, since they couldn't talk about you know angels and demons in the old medieval concepts anymore they transferred it to modern technology now the angels and demons were supposedly flying around in flying saucers and i called it the millennial disease because it was people who just wanted so badly to believe that jesus was going to come and save them that they had to put uh, jesus into a flying saucer and of course there were some groups that claimed that jesus was an alien So I didn't have much patience with that sort of thing. And I didn't want to read about it. I didn't want to hear about it because as far as I was concerned, that was over the line of rational discourse. It was on the other side of the line that I had drawn in my own uh, thinking and experience in life. And anybody who wanted to discuss it was going to have to go and discuss it with someone else, not me, because I wasn't going to talk about it. It was too silly. It was ridiculous
1: and where at what point uh, what uh, changed your mind about that
0: well what changed my mind about it was i actually saw one of the damn things okay and
1: uh so you couldn't as easily as easily dismiss it
0: right because you know uh, uh, the, the way i thought about it was first of all that uh, you know since i was obviously i mean in my own mind and i mean it was it was a fact that i was anti-UFO, anti-alien anti you know weirdness of any of any sort relating to UFOs and aliens. So seeing one certainly wasn't a product of being uh, convinced that they must exist or wishful thinking or uh, you know trying to convert anything you see in the sky and into some kind of UFO. And in this case it wasn't a light dancing in the sky that could be interpreted as, you know, any numbers of things, including the planet Venus or swamp gas. It was a very large boomerang-shaped object. It was probably um, 100 feet from the ground. It was just over the top of my two-story house, and I I would say that a two-story house is, what, uh, uh, 30 30, 30 feet high, so it was... Maybe it wasn't even 100 feet off. Maybe it was only, you know, 50 or 75 because it was 25 to 30 feet above the top of the house. And it was quite large, and it was black, and it had a very uh, dull red glow, almost like infrared. And it was absolutely and totally silent. And it flew, I mean, flying doesn't even describe it because it, it moved about as fast as I can walk. And I had a pretty good idea at that point that, you know, when when objects fly, that they have to achieve a certain velocity to get lift, to get off the ground.
1: And to remain in the air. And to remain air. in the air, <laughs> right. Beca- and,
0: and then there's something called stall speed. You know, you go, you, you slow down so much and then you fall out of the sky.
1: But that's under normal pr- propulsion
0: systems. That's under normal propulsion systems, of course. And I took that into into consideration. So there was this object, and I saw it. Uh, Four of my five children were with me at the time, and they all saw it. And we were all kind of like, uh, what was that? And we watched it pass over, and probably it was fully in in view on a clear night when there was plenty of ambient light from street lamps and and from the house lights around us and so forth because we were in the city. Plenty, plenty of light and we probably had it in full view from the time it emerged over the top of the house until it was completely out of sight for maybe, maybe a full half a minute, maybe a good, you know, a full 30 seconds or so, you know, plenty of time to really, really eyeball it and swivel your neck around and watched it as it disappeared over the trees in the distance. So my first reaction was to try to explain it as a flock of geese because nothing in, in my experience, you know, fit what I had seen. And I, I, you know, I can actually remember my mind working almost feverishly to try to come up with some explanation for why geese would be flying so close together that there was no sky in between their bodies, and, and why they had lights on, and, and why they glowed I mean, red, why they were
1: <laughs> black and not white,
0: yeah, and 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 why they they weren't like straggling, you know, why it had a, a you know completely boomerang shape, and and they were, you know, packed together so tightly. So and I, why I, they were still in Florida in the summer? Well, yeah, because this was in August, and. Uh, so, I was just just having a, a real difficult time, and I can remember the feverish thinking in my mind. And and my ex husband came out the door to find out what we were all shouting about, you know, because it was like, oh my God, what was that? What did you see that? Oh, what was that? Did you blah, blah, et cetera? And I, it just came out of my mouth. It was a flock of geese flying south for the winter. It was amazing. And he looked at me, you know, kind of pitying and saying, you know, hey geese don't fly south in august besides which we are south <laughs> so you were
1: you were kind of downed if you did and downed you didn't right and right the, the rational explanation was it wasn't flying either
0: yeah it wasn't flying either yeah. and then the next thing that happened was uh i had a friend who was interested in this sort of thing and we'd had quite a few uh, arguments about it and i really didn't want to talk about it and i told him you know there's no such thing and So I called him and I said, I saw a very strange thing and I'm not sure what it was. And as it happened, another friend had seen a similar thing probably at around the same time or or within several minutes, uh, not too far away, a couple of miles away from my, my house. But I was not going to be stymied. I was going to find a rational explanation for it because I was not going to think that this was a UFO. It was not. Well, I mean, it was a UFO as long as it was unidentified, but I was going to identify it, which meant that I was going to find out, first of all, if anybody else had seen it, besides this so-called friend who I didn't consider to be trustworthy enough. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, because I knew him. I, want, I wanted a stranger to have seen it. So I called uh, the various television stations and several radio stations the next day and asked them if anybody had reported seeing anything unusual the previous night. I just wanted somebody to say, oh, yeah, you know, somebody somebody saw flocks of geese flying south for the winter. You know, I mean, that would have been nice because then it would have confirmed, you know, the flocks of geese, uh, the flock of geese theory. But that didn't happen. What, you know, when they asked, well what, well, what do you mean? And I just says, well, I really don't want to say. You know, I mean, just did, has anybody called in and reported anything? And they says, well... You know, no. And I said um, nothing at all. And it says, "No, it says, You know, tell us what it." Is. So I said, "Well, it was an unusual, an unusual craft." And they, of course, assu- assumed that I was talking about lights in the sky. And it says, "Well, you know, you should know that there was a meteor shower last night. It was, it was during the Perseid meteor shower." And um, so, I mean, I was being dismissed for for thinking that uh, I had seen meteors. Well, I didn't even get a chance to explain because I hung up. Well, this was pretty much the reaction I got from everybody I called. I watched the newspapers. Nothing appeared. I called the Air Force Base, you know, to ask them, were they flying any kind of experimental craft? I had a cousin who worked for uh, uh, NASA over in uh, Cocoa Beach, on the other coast and i called and talked to him and explained to him what and he you know of course he told me that there were things he couldn't tell me but the only thing he could tell me was what i was describing was not one of theirs that he knew anything about but of course you know he didn't have to know everything so i i i kind of held on to the to the idea that it was some kind of secret craft well the only problem with that was was not too long after my dog died and, and and I also began suffering from very strange symptoms that were very similar to radiation poisoning. And lots of my hair fell out. You know, my skin did weird things. You know, I, all my mucous membranes swelled up and, and I was choking. And this went on for about six months. I was having this, this continuous problem. And I didn't know what to say to my doctor. You know, I mean, you go to the doctor and you're having this thing. So, I mean, I would just say to him, I wasn't going to tell him, you know, this, is, this started after I saw this thing fly over my house. So instead I told him, well, I think I'm having an allergic reaction to something. So I lived on antihistamines and pain pills and, and, and nerve pills because, you know, he was certain that I was having nervous reactions to things and, and uh, you know, none of this was very pleasant. But that's neither here nor there at this point because what happened was that I, I then launched upon a research project to try to find out if anybody else had ever seen anything like this before and what they had to say about it. And that led me into reading a lot of books about so-called UFO sightings and aliens and so on. At the end of this reading project, the only thing I was certain of was that there was a lot of smoke and a lot of mirrors and just like this guy says... You know, entering a kingdom of shadows, peopled by would-be Machiavellis who are practiced in the art of deception. That's exactly what it felt like. So the point of this was was that I soon began to have some theories, and also working as a hypnotherapist. And I've shared some of these sessions with with the listeners. Uh, if you look back on the podcast. Um, history, you'll find some of them on, on aliens, alien abductions and so forth where I've actually shared some of the tape recordings of some of these sessions and I found that most people who were into the whole alien shtick, they all believed that the aliens were, were you know, good guys they were all coming here to save us or they were you know, you know floating in stationary orbit or something out outside the planet just waiting for you know, George Bush or whoever happened to be president at the moment to invite them to the White House for tea But I didn't think so, and I guess it's easy to understand why when you have a a, a sighting of of something like that and it nearly kills you, you don't think it's terribly benevolent. So I began talking about it and revealing some of the things that some of my clients, my hypnotherapy clients, uh, revealed in their sessions as well as some of the conclusions I was drawing from my research. And that's when things started getting weird. Because I started having strange clicks on the telephone. I started having all kinds of strange synchronous things happening in my life. And, you know, lots of people report this sort of thing. But uh, I had always thought that they were making things up. Well, I can assure you they weren't making things up because here it was happening to me. And I was a skeptic. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't buying any of this. And then the death threat started. Now... And this happened in kind of an interesting way because there was a particular woman who came to me and claimed that she had been abducted by aliens and that various types of exams and sexual experiences had resulted from this abduction. And I thought to myself, "Self, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. I've read about all these other people, you know, Bud Hopkins and all these people, you know, who are true believers, they believe this crap. And I don't think that one should start out believing it. One should start out, you know, looking at it in a very practical way. And the way I was thinking about it was, was that this is a crime. I mean, at the simplest level, somebody has been kidnapped and they have been raped. So let's look at it as a crime. Well, I had a friend who was an ex-cop and also had his own detective agency, Private Investigations, and i went to him and told him the whole story i said you know you know you're gonna think i'm crazy and i told him the whole thing and at the end of it you know he says no i don't think you're crazy believe it or not i don't think you're crazy he says i've heard things so i says well you know i'm very relieved that you you don't think i'm crazy now my question is is i would like to investigate this as a crime can you help me and he says yes I can. So he said the first thing is you need to collect physical evidence, and he told me that uh, I needed to find out if the clothing that the individual wore was still in a more or less uh, uncontaminated state. In other words, had it not been washed or dry cleaned or otherwise, and if if that could be obtained, then they could send it to a police lab and do a forensic analysis. So I got in touch with the client. I asked her, and she says, as a matter of fact, she says, that when I came in that night, you know, I, I took my dress off in the, in, in the walk-in closet, dropped it on the floor, and kicked it in the corner, and I haven't picked it up since. You know, I mean, I, she says, I can't. So I said, fine, put it carefully in a plastic bag and seal it up and bring it here. So she did. And at this point, the most bizarre thing happened. She dropped it off in my house. It was on a Friday. I had to wait till Monday to hand it over to the PI guy. And what happened was, was that suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, a guy appears who claims to be a well-known and competent MUFON investigator of UFOs and so forth and abductions, etc. And he had heard about this situation of course because i had shared shared some of it with some of the mufon people trying to get some information on how to go about taking care of it or how to how to investigate it and he contacted her and in just a few hours convinced her that uh that I was an evil person who was going to, you know, submit her to police scrutiny. She was going, her name was going to be dragged through the mud. There was going to be all kinds of unpleasant publicity. I myself was just a, a glory hound who was looking to to create a perfect case and write a book and become famous like Bud Hopkins. And I didn't really think Bud Hopkins was all that famous. I mean, you know, how how much of a market is there for people reading about alien abductions, you know? Anyway... She came into my house and demanded that I give her the dress back and explained to me that, you know, she was sorry, but she was going to, that, that she trusted this MUFON investigator, that she was going to let him handle the case, that she you know, she didn't think that I had the experience. To, well, I knew I didn't have the experience. That's why I had a private investigator helping me for crying all night. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a police lab. So, I mean, I really had no choice. So I gave the dress back to her, and at that point, the the defamation campaign began. This person, this so-called Mufon investigator, began to defame me in the most obnoxious way possible. I mean, just just what I've just said that he he was telling her is only a small part of the terrible things he began to say about me. You know that I was. Uh, that I was damaging people, damaging their minds, but, you know, that uh, by by subjecting the, the the individual to a forensic investigation or even suggesting that they should, you know, go in and and immediately after something like that happens to go into a hospital and get checked for rape, get checked for any kind of, of fluid, you know, fluids on their body. I mean, that's what you do when somebody gets raped for crying all out. You know, you, you go to a hospital. You get examined, they get specimens or samples so that they can prove something in court. But this is not what, obviously, somebody wanted to have happen. So this was one of the most, and I, and I began to feel this strange sense of unreality. Geez, I felt like Joe Wilson, you know, who came back and said, you know, that Iraq hasn't bought any yellow cake from Niger. You know, that I was being defamed and flamed and and exposed all over the place. And I hadn't done anything except try to tell the truth as as far as I knew it and understood it and try to deal with this, this individual as honestly as I could. She needed help. She needed to know what happened. She needed closure. What better way to get closure if you have been kidnapped and raped than to find out that it's really true, it's not in your imagination, and that... You know, there is some kind of label that can be put on it that you can name the attacker in some way. So I later found out that the, uh, the dress was forensically examined by a water quality tester uh, at the local county uh, water tr- uh, processing plant, you know, where they turn the sewage into, they, they treat the water and turn it into water that they can pour out in the river or whatever. And that he had shaken the dress out over a shower curtain to see if there were any fibers on it and so forth. And and, and that was pretty much the whole, uh, the, the extent of their so-called superior MUFON investigation. I mean, come on, I was going to send the dress to a police lab. I mean, I was not going to tell the police lab that the woman had been supposedly taken by aliens. It was going to be presented strictly as a kidnapping and a rape. You know, she was not going to be dragged through the mud. But this is what happened. Now, you can say that it's just jealousy, or that it was uh, happenstance, or whatever. But this sort of this was the beginning. This was only one specific incident. It was the beginning of the kinds of things that are done to people who try to tell the truth, who try to do things honestly, who try to you know to do their work, to do their homework to put things together as carefully as possible and in a forensic, logical and practical way. And that's what we have experienced, you know, throughout that that period of our lives when we were investigating that sort of thing. And when you look at the entire so-called UFO slash alien slash new age slash human potential movement, you see the stamp of this kind of activity just like this whole yellow cake affair with Joe Wilson and Valerie Plame and, and uh, demonizing Saddam Hussein to go to war, the whole fingerprint of, of counterintelligence and disinformation is all over it. And once you've seen it in that context, then it's, it's completely simple to see it in 9-11 context. It's the same exact thing, the same games, the same tricks, the same traps, the same defamations
1: well you know what well, what it seems like to me is that um, there must be some kind of a template basically that they that they apply and that can be applied to any situation because if you break any of these scenarios um, or any scenario that they would have to deal with um, intelligence agents or whoever would have to deal with the government basically it's it's about the uh, information uh, control, control of, of information, information so yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's UFOs or politics right. or the environment or whatever you just you, you have you have truth you have the reality of the situation you have the public and you have your work to do in between yeah. in ensuring that it doesn't get to the public and you do and, and there's probably and you have a, the people who are bringing it who can be intimidated threatened manipulated yeah that's all part of the yeah, of, yeah. of, of yeah. the template you know and it's yeah. just you know they've, they've got standard operating procedures and they apply them to any situation and it works you know
0: yeah, and the and, this is, and
1: the one thing they don't want anybody to do, and it's and it's very simple, is that they like you just said, they don't want anyone to simply look at it in a in a critically, in a logical way, and, and, and use logical kind of procedures to try and deconstruct it or look at it unemotionally. They don't want anybody to do that, to, and this is why they get the whole emotional aspect into it, and that colours the. The, the critical thinking and the logic and and their jobs jobs half done at that stage. Huh?
0: Yeah, and that's a that's an interesting thing because you know every once in a while, even though I have read so many cases going back even before the so-called you know nuclear age and back into into history and 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 anybody who's read Richard Dolan's book UFOs in the National Security State will know that there is something going on and the the national security state the secret government of the us does not want the people to know what the truth of it is and whether whether or not they are running a, a complete disinformation campaign to make people believe there are aliens and then debunking it to make them all think they're crazy maybe it's a maybe it's a big experiment maybe it was a the precursor to 911 you know to see how see how much crap they could make people believe and how much debunkery they could do and how confused and twisted they could they could make their minds I don't know. I it, it's it's such it's such a, a hall of mirrors that you have to just go back to ground zero on every single thing and and look at the look at the initial evidence and the initial test and try to get hard evidence too.
1: Mm-hmm. It's um it, it just occurs to me as well that they um they also use the standard kind of ta- techniques or, or tactics. For the control or the, the limitation of, of, of truth getting out to the public, uh, they use that, that on themselves. Like you just use the word, uh, the, you know, the secret government. It strikes me that, that there's an awful lot of disinformation and manipulation around who the, the, the controllers yeah. are, the, the yeah. secret, even use the term secret government and all of these Illuminati and, and different sure. groups. Yeah, they're probably
0: red herrings.
1: But when the reality is something very, uh, much more min- mundane in a way. It, mm-hmm. It's very uh, it's simple in a way. You've just, like, and, and this gets into kind of the yeah. ponderology the stuff that we've mythologies. done. mythologies. The, 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 the psycho- psychopathy, essentially, that it, uh, an awful lot of it, perhaps, you know, somewhere in 90% of the answers or the explanation for all these things can be explained if people will just, um, if people could just accept the idea of psychopathy. And snakes in suits as 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 Snakes something. and Suits. As Robert yeah. Hare says. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well the next thing that
1: uh And by the way, I just wanted to say snakes in suits Yeah, Robert Hare said that. That's not a reference to any kind of UFO alien reptilian type stuff. we're, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're no Shape shifter
0: shifters, a uh, a la David Icky or Ikey yeah. or whatever his name just is. Just
1: snakes as in snaky type people. The character yeah. of a snake.
0: So then, of course, you know, we continued our investigations. Part of our investigations included our so-called Cassiopeia experiment. And that produced uh, very unusual material and brought on whole new levels of attacks that uh, were a little more subtle and, and took place over a longer period of time. I've chronicled a lot of this in, in bits and pieces here and there on our website, Cassiopeia.com. And if you go to our site map and you look at our studies in psychopathy, you'll see uh, a file that's, that's called Maynard Most. Well, Maynard Most is a pseudonym, but uh, the individual in question, you know, everybody knows because it's, it's pretty much an open secret, is, is a guy named Vincent Bridges who wrote a book called Monument to the End of Time. He wrote this book. While he was picking my brain for all the information he could get from me about, you know, from the from the Cassiopeia experiment and from my readings on on alchemy and and other other things, I wasn't terribly familiar with Fulcanelli at the time, but I, I certainly had a a lot of information, and the C's had a lot of information. But in any event, uh, this was a very subtle thing, you know, where where they try to bring someone in, and or they send someone to get close to you to compromise you in some way or to take you over. There's there's various ways of doing it, and when we became aware that uh, the nature of this contact and the nature of this uh, encounter with this individual, and withdrew from it, and of course by this time, you know, we were we were. Uh, Somewhat involved in in various exchanges and activities, so that it was it was certainly you know an embarrassing thing to admit that we had been misled. and then we uh, observed his behavior and that began our research on psychopathy. So all of that's pretty much chronicled on the website. But among the things that I didn't know at the time that I have only learned over time since that, was that this Vincent Bridges and Jay Wiedner, his co-author of this book, were very close friends with Jeff Rentz. Jeff Rentz, who is the um, one of the number one alternative news sites uh, covering the 9-11 truth movement on the Internet today.
1: We're going to end it there for the moment. We'll be back next week with a continuation of this discussion of counterintelligence, black ops, and the 9-11 Truth Movement. For more information, visit our website, www.signs-of-the-times.org. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.